Let's turn to Joshua chapter 8, verse 1. Joshua 8, 1. It's a book of 24 chapters. We're not really taking eight at a time. I'm going to deal with different things out of the book. But if you just go home and read it by next week, you can have the whole thing done. Joshua 8, verse 1. The Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid nor dismayed. Take all the people of war with you, the people who will do warfare. And we have people around here who will do warfare because sometimes that's what it takes to get victory. Take all the people of war with you and arise, get up, and go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land. See, that's the enemy. And God says, I'll give you even the land that the enemy has taken. If you're not afraid, don't get dismayed and just trust in me. I want you to think very quickly or even turn back. And if you turn to chapter 1, go ahead and flip back a little bit to chapter 1. Look at verse 6 in chapter 1. Look at verse 7 in chapter 1. Look at verse 9 in chapter 1. It's like, was this guy afraid or what? (laughs) Because God keeps saying the same thing over and over to him. You know, God will do marvelous things, and you'll be up here speaking about how great it was, and you got the answer, but two weeks later, you might all over again need God to say, hey, don't be afraid this time. (laughs) I'm still the same. I haven't changed. As I was with you three weeks ago, I'll be with you now. Maybe it feels harder now, but I'm the same. I haven't changed. And so God continually reaffirms to Joshua the fact that God is faithful. Joshua can trust him. God hadn't moved. He hadn't changed his mind. And Joshua still doesn't need to be afraid. And maybe Joshua started out with a little fear. Maybe you did. But see, it doesn't matter because God will keep telling you over and over what to do. And if you do what God says, you're going to come out okay. Joshua 10.25, even after 8, before 8 and after 8, God doesn't change his refrain to Joshua. 10.25 says, do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong. Be of good good courage. Joshua 11.6, do not be afraid of them, speaking of his enemies. And so you know what? Sometimes something is entrenched in us so much. That God has to deal with us over a period of time, and he'll say the same thing over and over and over. And you know what? God has a lot more patience than I do, because <laughs> I might want to say, I've said it to him ten times. If they haven't listened to me by now, forget them. Forget you. But God doesn't forget you. He said he'll never forget you. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. He doesn't get sick of you, and he'll just keep telling you the truth. And sooner or later, the truth will get in you. See, because that's what it's about, getting the truth in you. You know what? It's, it's not about how you feel. <laughs> how you feel doesn't change the truth. But if you let the truth change the way you feel, you'll be okay. <laughs> and so God is in the business of changing people and rearranging us and changing how we think. And he'll set us in our right mind because none of us are hardly there. And so God is a good God. I thank him for that. When we start looking at Joshua, we looked last week at some incidents from his life. And I told you that, you know, Things that he chose in the seemingly small places, things that correct responses he made all along the journey of life are the things that prepared him, that formed character in him, that ended up qualifying him for God's choice of him as the leader of the children of Israel. And see, sometimes we think, it doesn't matter what I'm doing now. Nobody's watching. Nobody's around. But, you know, when we start setting in motion patterns and principles in our life, Those are the things that keep us disciplined enough so that by the time we get a long way out there, those things are so ingrained in us, we instinctively do the right thing. And so now we need to begin setting in motion patterns in our life. Now, when God says a thing, do it. 
Whatever he says to you, do it so that later it won't be hard to do it. It'll be natural. It'll be second nature to you. Now, I could spend this service reading some of these chapters, but instead I'm going to have you do that when you go home. I'm just going to explain some things about the man Joshua and about the book Joshua. I taught this many years ago, and I taught it a little differently then, and I called it the making of a general. Because actually, if you look in the book of Joshua, there's good leadership training. Because Joshua was a leader. He was the one who finally, finally led the children of Israel out of the wilderness and over into the promised land. And so there's some people that are worth following. You know what? Somebody said, I'm a leader. But, you know, I say, well, who's following you? See, if you say you're a leader but nobody's behind you, you're not discipling anybody, you're not pouring into into anybody, you're just standing out there by yourself. And so you're just a lone ranger. And so a leader always has followers. So you need to be planting into other people even while somebody's planting into you. In Numbers chapter 11, not even in the book of Joshua, we can go back and we can see something in Joshua's past that begins to tell us something about him. Because we begin forming attitudes early in life. And if we will listen, where our attitudes are off, where they're just a little bit off-center from where God would think, he will begin dealing with us, and then by the time we get into that place God has for us, we'll be okay. We won't have to be confused. We won't send other people in the wrong direction. But in Numbers chapter 11, Moses was told by the Lord to gather 70 men, stable leaders, to help in the administration, the burden, really, of the administration of the irritable, complaining, (laughs) murmuring Israelites. And it's funny, we can read about them and think, oh my God, aren't they awful? And yet, we operate that way a lot of the time. So don't point fingers at them, because really, they are a type of the church. And you are here, and we are the church. (laughs) And so really, they are just a foreshadow of what tends to come out of our lives a lot. But if we're smart, we can learn from them and we don't have to make the mistakes they made we can learn from their mistakes and so God said Moses gather 70 men get some stable leaders I have some things for you to do but the administration burden is getting too much and I want these men to be delegated some authority to help you in carrying out the duties with this whole huge mob of people and part of their responsibility they were told to prophesy to their peers these men were told prophesy to your peers here the word prophesy does not mean foretelling the future it does not mean one who can see and have vision for what God has for you here it means exhort encourage and so they were supposed to exhort and encourage their peers we're supposed to be doing that all the time we need to be exhorting and encouraging one another as much as we can because you know what Satan comes to discourage when God says Joshua don't be afraid Don't be dismayed. It's because we tend to go there a lot. And so God has to use even us with one another to encourage and exhort one another. And nothing's wrong with that. So they were supposed to begin to prophesy to their peers, to exhort them. And there's these two guys, Eldad and Medad. And so Eldad and Medad were among those 70 leaders. They were leaders. They were not just, you know, know, visitors. They were not just attendees. They were leaders. And Eldad and Medad were told, as some of these leaders, to report to the tabernacle where Moses would impart to them. And then once that was done, they were to go out and prophesy, encourage, exhort, and keep morale up with all their peers. Well, it got reported back to Joshua that Eldad and Medad were, in fact, prophesying. But they were doing it in the camp, and they had not yet come to the tabernacle to let Moses impart to them and give them instruction. And Joshua was upset about that because things didn't seem right. 
And so he went back to Moses and he says, Moses, Eldad and Medad are out there prophesying, but they haven't come to the tabernacle like you said. They've not done it. They've not followed your instructions. And they're out there prophesying. Well, you know, Moses was tired with the burden of the people. And so he probably was just glad somebody was doing something. (laughs) And he said, Joshua, don't worry about it. You know, it's good they're prophesying, son. It's all right. You know, at least somebody's out there prophesying. Said I would that everybody would prophesy. You know, at that point he thought, you know, they're discouraged, they're dismayed, they're grumbling, they're complaining. If somebody will exhort him, I'm not going to be mad about it. But the truth was Joshua perceived a problem that Moses, in his weariness at that point, really didn't notice. And he perceived that there was an attitude among some of the leaders that was not appropriate. They were doing what Moses had said for them to do, but they weren't doing it God's way. And what's funny is the other night at prayer, Cammie, wherever she is, you began to say, and I thought, have these girls read my notes? You began to pray Wednesday night about both the power and the authority to do a thing. And you said, God, make us wise so that we'll understand the difference between the power to do a thing and the authority to do a thing. Remember that? And, you know, right here, they had the power to do the thing, but they hadn't yet been given the authority because if you're doing it out from under authority, it's out of order. It's wrong. And so Joshua recognized there was a disobedient attitude here, and it was going to end up hurting them. Because he saw that same attitude had hurt the whole congregation of Israel and caused their journey to take years, what could have taken 11 days. (laughs) That little journey over to the promised land was an 11-day journey. But they wandered for years because of certain issues in their life. And so he considered it an important thing that they got their act together. Because he didn't want to be among people who were going to do this all over again. You know, in 97, which was a long time ago now, I taught a series on servant leaders. And see, we can pass out the handout on leaders, and everybody likes to read it. But the truth is a true leader should have, in God's arena, have the heart of a servant. So you need to serve those above you as well as serve those under you, those that you're ministering to. And so there's a heart attitude that God wants, and you've got to be humble. You can't be seeking credit or glory. You've got to be willing to do whatever is asked. Now, I know that if I'm filling out a membership card and it says, would you like to help with the children? Would you like to do computer graphics? Would you like to be an usher? Would you like to help with the band? Would you like to be on the helps team? It's valid that you're going to fill out what your strength is, what your heart goes for, you know, what you feel you're particularly suited for. But, you know, sometimes you just do what's needed because we don't have on there clean the bathrooms, you know, (laughs) because the truth is anybody can do that. And sometimes I have. And so there are certain things that even if we're a leader, no matter what our stature, we want to be willing to do whatever's necessary. And so sometimes we just switch off jobs and we find that people around here who sometimes are the pulpit people are ending up doing some of the most minute things because they're just willing. And God will take a willing heart. God will take a willing heart every time and use it and choose it and say, well done, good and faithful servant. I was talking to a minister friend of mine one time, and they were telling me that they told one of the people, one of their staff, to give a message to sort of correct something that was going on in a certain church meeting. And that person They said, you know, I want you to go talk to them and tell them I'd rather have it done this way. And this is not really a good witness to people. It's not a good idea. And so that leader went and told those people what the minister wanted to relay to them. But later, the minister found out the words that were used, 
the tone of voice, sort of the attitude, the spirit that was conveyed to those people and got very angry at that leader. And I said, well, they did what you wanted. And that minister said, no, they know me and they know my heart. And I would have never spoken to people that way. And even though they relayed the correct message, they did it in a way that was not a style or a manner or, or a way that we operate around here. And so you know what? There's times when even when you're delegated authority, that authority, you need to look to who delegated it to you. And you have a sense of how they want it done. You know, there's things, I have a sense of how God wants to minister to people. There's times when we pull people in and there's times when we sort of give them a little rope. There's times when we love people. There's times when we get a little bit stern. You know what? The Father God's heart operates at different times in different ways. And if you're working for someone, you know how they want things done. And so if you really want to be a servant leader, you're going to do it even not just what they want done, but the way they want it done. And see, we need to learn that at work. We need to learn that at church. We need to learn that in our family setting. And so there's a lot to be said about a right spirit even when we're doing something. So it's not just are you supposed to do it, but are you supposed to do it in that manner? And these are the things that God is going to deal with in our lives. One time I remember we were praying, and it was a leadership prayer meeting. And some of our leaders that we have a lot of faith in their ability to hear from God, they're developed in the gifts of the Spirit. And as we prayed together, they felt three or four of them sort of had a revelation that they were supposed to go. And there was a young man that we had been worried about, was in some trouble, and they said, we're supposed to go, we're supposed to go now. And if we all go now to where he's staying and, and confront him, we believe we can pull him back from really the clutches of the enemy where Satan was trying to pull him. And so I trusted what those guys said. We looked to Easy, and Easy goes, not now. And everybody was gung-ho, and everybody was sort of excited, like they were on ready. The mercy in me, like, oh, come on, you know, look, look how excited they are. And Easy goes, not now. And we were sort of antsy, and it, it sort of cooled everybody off a little bit, and we were thinking, oh, gosh, is we, we going to lose our opportunity? Everybody doesn't want this kid to end up falling back into the bondage of drugs and whatever he was doing. And Easy said, not now. And we waited and 30 or 40 minutes passed, and we had our prayer meeting, and Easy made one phone call, and the truth is, if those guys would have gone when they wanted, that young man wasn't even there, it would have got them in trouble, and Easy made that phone call, and he goes, now go. They went, they talked to him, everything worked out. You know what? Sometimes God will even speak to those above you. See, not just you. <laughs> Sometimes God will speak to somebody else, <laughs> and they're going to have the word that you need, and it'll keep you safe. And so we have to honor that and respect that in the body of Christ. As we read the book of Joshua, he's not the only one talked about. You know, if somebody looks at our lives, we affect other people. We intertwine with other people. There's people that, that we have interpersonal relationships with, and we affect them, and they affect us. And so as you look in this story, I want to give you some highlights of the life of not just Joshua, but some other people. And so I want you to look at chapter 2, chapter 6, sort of scan quickly, and you'll find the name of a woman. Her name is Rahab. Her name is Rahab. When I was in eighth grade, there was a song, Ahab the Arab. And so when I look at Rahab, I always think of Ahab. But anyway, Rahab is in there, chapter 2 and chapter 6. And a lot of people, when they speak of her name, they will automatically just say Rahab the harlot. <laughs> you know, Rahab the harlot. And poor Rahab, you know, she gets a bad rap. And if you're under a certain age, a harlot is not a real familiar word to you. And if you're over a certain age, other things that people say are not a real familiar word to you. And I was at a youth conference a few years ago, and they preached a sermon on the Jericho Ho. 
And I didn't know what that was at one point. <laughs> and one of your daughters came in, and she was talking to me a few years back about a young woman in her high school who was a bit promiscuous and began to say this word. And I said, what? She's a what? And she goes, she's a hoe. And I go, what does that mean? And she explained it to me. And so I got it. I know you might not be familiar with the word harlot, but you will be familiar with this, this other word. And at a ladies' meeting one time, there was a lady talking about the principles of gardening in the Bible. And, and I remember this elegant lady stood up in front of all these other lovely dressed ladies at a country club, and she said, the Lord gives seed time and harvest, and there's a time to plant, and some among us are planters. There's a time to water, and some among us are waterers. There's a time to hoe, and some among us are hoers. And some among us began to laugh. And so anyway... Rahab the harlot, all right, enough said. So this woman is of ill repute. And she met the two spies when they first came into the land to spy it out, when Joshua sent them out to case the land. And they lodged at her house, and some said she wasn't really a harlot, she was an innkeeper. But anyway, Moses had sent out 12 spies 40 years earlier, and they came back with a very different report, and it caused havoc among the people. And this time, the men went back in and had a different report. And this time it was just two or three of them. So you know what? The principle here that tells me it's better to have two or three people in agreement than ten people who can't figure out what they're doing with each other. <laughs> See, it's better to have two or three in agreement. You can get more accomplished with two or three people in agreement than with 12 people, but, you know, three of them are in dissension. <laughs> I'm telling you that will cause powerlessness every time. It's like just unplugging yourself from the socket when you're trying to operate like that. So sit and think about that a while. Gideon's army was small, but they were powerful because they were in agreement. The place of agreement is a place of power. Rahab the harlot recounted some things in her conversation with the spies, and the Lord actually, I believe, had been preparing her to receive them. You know, sometimes God works on your heart for something that's getting ready to happen. And if you let him do the work when the thing gets ready to happen or when the thing happens, you'll be okay. This is what she said to the spies. She said, I know that the Lord has given you the land. This is a foreign woman. She hasn't been walking with the Israelites. She hasn't had the benefit of all that God's been speaking. And yet she says, I know that the Lord's given you the land. Yet some among them couldn't even believe that. But she says, I know the Lord's given you the land. You know, sometimes faith can rise up in the least likely person. And they can be the person that make all the difference. And so she had the best confession of all. So she had heard how God had dried up the waters of the Red Sea. She heard what had been done to the kings of, of the Amorites, the king of the Amorites. And she said to them, I beg you to spare me and deliver our lives, me and my family, from death. Now I want you to notice some real symbolic things that happened in chapter 2 when she began to speak to them. When she hid the two spies from the king of Jericho, she provided for them a covering of flax. Flax, F-L-A-X, for those of you who love the Old Testament symbolism. Flax was used to make linen. The, the use of linen in the priest's garment, you know, in the Old Testament, in Exodus, was always standing for purity, for the righteousness of God, for purity. And it spoke of the protection of God when they had on that linen garment. So when you walk in purity, there's a protection that is over your life. 
And so only dressed in linen could any man enter the Holy of Holies, or else they would be struck dead because of the presence of God. And so the flax is that same material that Rahab used to make that very strong rope by which the men escaped over the wall. That same red-dyed rope is what she bound in her outer window as a sign to generate safety for her and her family when they came in to attack. On Passover night, the Lord said to put over their doorpost the red blood symbolizing the blood of Jesus. And so this would be a symbol to the angel of death saying, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. When that red cord was in Rahab's family's window, when death came to the whole city, it passed over their household. It doesn't matter what kind of calamity is out there. If you are under and safe and underneath the blood of Jesus, there will always be a way of escape. There will be protection for you. There will be provision for your family. You do not have to worry. And you know what? Even sometimes you've come out from under the blood. Maybe you've been in a foreign place, but you can always come back in. You can always come back in. God never says, keep out. No, no. You know, this is locked forever to you. It's not like that. And so sometimes, see, even if you believe, she said, I know the Lord's given you the land. God will give you something to do. Haven't you seen on TV and sometimes that if you go to a miracle crusade, they'll say, I know, I just felt in my body I'm healed. And they'll go do something you couldn't do before. Bend over. Stretch. What could you not do? You couldn't lift your arm. Lift your arm. Praise God. The little boys that say they, they can hear now. Benny Hinn will get behind them and clap or snap or have them repeat. Do something you couldn't do. But see, sometimes when you say, I believe, God will have you do something. And that very act of rising up and doing it will motivate you to continue to believe. Because you can say, I believe, and in an instant, Satan will come in your mind and say, Ah, oh, no, nah, don't believe that. Uh-uh. He'll, he'll put lies in your mind to totally suck out that very faith that you just said you had. And so sometimes you've got to do something. And Rahab did something, and she bound a scarlet cord, a flax red-dyed rope in her window. And when Jericho fell, she and her family were totally safe, and every one of them came out alive. Now, here we have not an Israelite, see, but a foreigner asking for kindness to be shown to her and her family. There's the scripture that says, I have shown you kindness, Rahab said, and so please show kindness to my father's house. The word for kindness in the Bible here, the translation is said. It's a word used 250 times in the Old Testament. It means loyal. It means faithful. It means steadfast love. It's based on a promise or a covenant or agreement. And she's going, I've shown you kindness. I've shown you loyalty. I've, I've really put my life out on the line for you. And now I'm asking you to show kindness back to me. See, that's that diatheke, that covenant that goes both ways, not just one-sided, like us with God. We get all the, all the benefits, and he really gets just all of our mess. <laughs> but here, it's, a, it's, a, it's an equal giving and receiving. And she goes, I've shown you said. Now will you please show it to me? And this word is used over and over. It's a word used in describing God's covenant love for us. See, he will be loyal. He will be steadfast. He will be there every time. Even if you don't do your part, when you come running back to him, his part won't go away. And so God can be trusted. So here we've got a woman whose background is sketchy. You know, maybe she wasn't in keeper, but maybe she was a harlot or whatever you want to call it. And by faith and belief in the promise, she's grafted into the covenant line. See, God doesn't say, no, 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 your past isn't good enough. No, 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 because of where you came from, you were born on the wrong side of the tracks. God grafts her in to the covenant line. And she's now in covenant, the one given by God, to the Jews. And she's not even a Jew. 
She's really a, a prototype of you. <laughs> if you're not Jewish, your past was a mess. <laughs> You've got some ill repute <laughs> in your family line. But you can be grafted in, and you can be in covenant with God just as his chosen people because now you are. Rahab then becomes the mother of Boaz. Boaz marries Ruth. And eventually, down the family line, we have David. And so Rahab really, Ruth is the great-great-grandmother of David, the greatest king of Israel. And so we have Rahab being the great-great-great-great-grandmother of the king, who is the man after God's own heart. And so, see, it doesn't matter what you've come out of, how bad it's been. It doesn't matter what a mess. I've seen people who've come out of drugs and promiscuity and sexual immorality and homosexuality, and God takes them and uses them and makes their path blaze, and even other people follow in it and get set free. He can do the same with you. God will use whoever is available, and you don't need to be analyzing if you're good enough if God says he wants you. We've got a woman who believed the promise of God by faith. It was accounted to her for righteousness. That's how we believe. God makes a wild promise. We say, yeah, we believe you, God. And he says, it's accounted to you for faith. According to your faith, be it unto you. You are made righteous in my sight. It doesn't matter about your past. doesn't matter about hers. Now, let's go to the fall of Jericho. Notice that in the fall of Jericho, when this whole city was besieged by the Israelites, and they had unbelievable victory, the victory did not happen in a day. The victory did not happen in two or three days. The city was encircled 13 times before victory came. So, so much for superstition about certain numbers, and so much for those who think that it needs to happen right away or it's not going to happen. Because it was 13 times they circled the city following God's command the whole way around. And so when we trust God with all of our hearts, he will bring more help to us than we maybe think. See, sometimes if it doesn't happen right away, we start fainting. The Bible says not to faint because in due season, there'll come a harvest of blessing if you faint not. See, and that talks about when it doesn't look like it's going to happen, fainting is, is sort of moving off believing the promise to believing the circumstance. And see, we get sort of weak, and we start faint. What happens when you faint? You keel over, <laughs> and you don't really get to where you wanted to get. <laughs> You're on the ground. And so there's times when it takes a little patience, and it takes a little waiting, but God is faithful. Chapter 9, there's an interesting account of a deception in chapter 9. Now, Satan is the father of lies. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He majors in deception. You know, when you go to college, people go, what do you major in? Satan majors all the time for 2,000-something years in deception. He is very good at it. <laughs> He's got a PhDDD in deception, okay? And here, we have a very interesting account of deception where Joshua and his people fall prey. See, here's a man after God's own heart, but he falls prey to the tactics of the enemy. Because we cannot move away from the principles of God anytime. It's not like we ever got it down so much that we don't need God anymore. <laughs> it just doesn't work that way. There's a very telling scripture in Joshua chapter 9, verse 14. It says, The men of Israel partook of the provisions of this band of people, but they did not ask counsel of the Lord. Every other battle they fought, Joshua went to the Lord and inquired of him and said, God, what should we do? And God, not just what should we do, but when should we do it and how? <laughs> and God gave them very explicit instruction. 
But here, a band of people came dressed all ratter-tatter, raggedy. They had moldy bread. They smelled like they'd been traveling for days. And God had said, don't make any covenant with the peoples in that land because they're going to bring you down a wrong path. He doesn't want us making binding agreements with people that are not of like faith. So he didn't want them making a, a covenant with any people in that land. They were not on God's side. But see, these people looked like they weren't from that land because they looked like they'd been journeying for miles and for days. And so Joshua and his men went by what it looked like instead of checking it out and inquiring of the Lord. Because you know what? Sometimes people will deceive us. And sometimes our own eyes can deceive us. And sometimes our own heart can deceive us. But God will never deceive us. He is truth. He's the way, the truth, and the life. Joshua and his men, because they didn't inquire of the Lord, ended up making covenant with these people. These people were not the right people to get in, a, to get in a, an agreement with, to get in a relationship with, to get in a covenant situation with. But once they made covenant, I noticed they didn't break covenant. God's saying, you know, two wrongs here don't make a right. But I will tell you this, for years, for generations to come, this little band of people they went into covenant with caused them trouble. And so, you know what, sometimes there are decisions we will make in our life. We'll turn to God, we can repent, we say, Lord, forgive us, and he forgives us. And he says that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. But it doesn't mean there won't be certain repercussions that we might have to work through, that we might have to get the wisdom of God on because we gave ourselves a little trouble, we gave ourselves a little issue that we really weren't going to need, God didn't want in our path, but we got it there, so now we're going to have to have a little extra help from God to get around and get over the obstacles. Does that make sense to you? I, I, here, here's an example. Because I don't want you thinking, oh, God is mean. He's going to make it hard on me because I did that bad thing back then. I got a letter from a dear friend of mine. She has been raising her granddaughter for several years. Her granddaughter has loved the Lord. I've sent money to her for missions trips. But she started dating a young man about a year ago who wasn't serving the Lord. He got in a little bit of trouble with the law. He served some time in jail. The daughter started, instead of her changing him, he changed her. They started getting in a promiscuous relationship. The granddaughter comes to her and says, Granny, I'm pregnant, okay? The, the grandmother doesn't know what to do, but it looks like the, the young man wants to marry her. And, and now, though, three days go past, and the young man says he wants her to have an abortion. And this young girl is going, Lord, I loved you. I got involved with him. He wants me to have an abortion. He doesn't want to marry me. She's going to have this baby, but there are some things she's going to have to walk through now. God will take her hand, he will lead her through it, he will guide her every step of the way, but he really didn't want it to be quite that difficult on her. And if she would have followed his principles early on, she wouldn't have to be walking here right now. Does that make sense? So see, God always loves us. He's not displeased. He doesn't turn his back. He's not mad at us. But he really had our best interests in heart, and we didn't. <laughs> and so sometimes right here, God didn't want him to do it. He told him don't do it that way. They messed up. They didn't inquire. They went into covenant. And years and years later, this false step was causing trouble all the way down the line. And even Saul had trouble with this very same band of people years and years and years and generations later. Here's a quote by G. Campbell Morgan. A false step taken by a Christian is forgiven by God, but sometimes there are consequences that we work through for many years to come. James 4.4, 4, he who's a friend to the world is at enmity with God. In other words, all those people who are serving the God of this world, don't be going into covenant with them. Don't marry them. 
Don't be doing missionary dating. You know what I mean? Don't go into business with people that don't have the same values that you have. Because sooner or later, it will cause you some trouble, some issues. So we mustn't form binding associations with those who don't know God. Now, if we're snared in a moment of weakness or gullibility, we can repent. We can make restitution. God forgives us. But the outworking, we're going to really need more help than God ever intended us to want to have. Because God doesn't want us ever trapped. He wants us always triumphant. See, he really wants us free all the time. And walking in freedom has a level to it that you're not constantly ensnared by something. There's not obstacles all the time. There's not those same pitfalls. Now, when God spoke to Joshua and said, Joshua, you're going to be a leader, he didn't just tell him he was going to be a military leader. He said, Joshua, you're also going to be a shepherd to my people. And see, it's one thing to be a general, but it's another thing to be a shepherd. Joshua had to be a caretaker of his people. And really, there's times when you have to be very warlike. And we come in and intercede on Wednesday nights. But there's times when what God expects from you is compassion for others. And you need to be caring for people. And there ought to be somebody you care about besides yourself. (laughs) That's how God would have the church grow and multiply. Joshua's highest priority was to carry out his assignment. He had a high regard for chain of command, for the authority structure that was in place. He accomplished unbelievable results. When he took over the occupied land, they had valleys and plains, the Mediterranean coast. They had the Jordan region. Joshua was successful everywhere he went. It was sort of this incredible, like you hardly read of a war where the victories are so fast and so consistent. But when you read through this book, it's like, whoa. Whoa. I mean, they make it every time. They, they get their man every time. They get their territory conquered every time. And it went on year after year after year without let up. That's how God wants our life to be, that we just progress from victory to victory. to. Victory. But we're going to have to inquire of him to get like that. We're going to have to ask his direction every time to, for it to be like that. Joshua eleven fifteen has this awesome scripture that I love so much. It says, as the Lord commanded Moses, his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua. And so Joshua did. As the Lord commanded Moses his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua. And so Joshua did. And then it says, he left nothing undone of all that the Lord commanded Moses. Joshua left nothing undone of all that the Lord commanded Moses. Boy, I want that to be said of me. You know, we talked a long time ago about undone things. See, I want my life to be such that there's nothing that God expected from me that I've left undone. So he can say, well done, good and faithful servant. When I go to my reward and glory, and that's going to be a long time from now because i got a lot of stuff yet to do, and so do you. Now, there's always patterns and choices, we're closing up, that are keys to teach you and instruct you. When you read these Old Testament stories, don't read it like just some little fairy tale. I mean, these are real people who had real experiences with the Lord. And if you will look into it, you can see, you can learn from their example. You can learn strategy to avoid the pitfalls of the enemy. And God wants you to have success. The word success is only one time in the Bible, and it's in the word of Joshua, in the book of Joshua. God wants you to have success. So learn, look at what this man did, emulate him, do likewise. Next week, we're going to talk about some different things. There's three tribes that made a bad choice, 
when they were taking over the promised land. And we're going to learn how sometimes we think we're doing okay, but there's a little compromise in our walk. And how compromise might look good for a season, but in the end, it'll come back to bite us. And we'll talk about those three tribes and what they did. Next time, we'll talk about the summation of the portioning out of the conquered land. There's a guy, Caleb, in there who's 85 years old when they finally get there. That man has been waiting a long time. And when they get there, he is not shrunken over and beat down. He sees this mountain, and he says, hey, I'll take the mountain. And so you know what? Your years to come can be awesome. Some of y'all think, oh, my God, I hit 30. And so I don't want you getting that thing about some number means something's over for you. Caleb was 85 and he said, I'm going to take the mountain. There's some exciting people in this book. See, it's not just about Joshua. And you know what? You want people to look at you and go, hey, there's some exciting stuff they do. I would like to learn from them. I'd like to be like them. I'd like to get in on what they know. If you're doing what God teaches you, people are going to look at you and think that. So we've got Rahab. We've got Joshua. We've got Caleb. We can learn from their lives, but really, you know what? Every one of them points us to Jesus. (laughs) There's just one author, one finisher of our faith. It's Jesus. See, we can't idolize these people. we got to look at Jesus every time because they point us to him. And each one of them foreshadow part of the work of redemption. Joshua only preached two good sermons in his life, but he led the people to victory. I love to teach these preachers to preach, and we have our rotating team of preachers. But you know what? It's more important that you're leading people than you're standing up here preaching. See, it's more important that you're discipling people and planting into people than you stand up here and preach. Because we got a lot of people who can preach, but you know what? Our multiplication tactics need some work. Jesus took 12 disciples. They turned the world upside down. So we need to be turning somebody's life upside down and really right side up for Jesus. That's what we need to decide to do. I'm going to close up. I have got a lot more, but I'm going to save the rest of the notes for next week. We're going to talk one more time about Joshua. But right now, you be the leader that God's called you to be. Because when people come in, I believe we're going to have a new influx of younger people. I believe we're going to have older people. The age gap won't be so big. But I believe we're going to start having the the 19-year-olds, the 18-year-olds, the 20-year-olds. And so I just want us to be the kind of people that say, God, I don't want there to be any undone things in my life. Everything that you've designed for me, I want to do it, and I want to do it with all my might. Stand to your feet with me. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Lord, we just thank you for your promises to us. God, we thank you for your principles, for your precepts, for your patterns. God, we thank you for the things that you show us in the Bible if we'll just open our eyes and if we'll just listen. And so, Father, we thank you that we're not going to be ignorant of Satan's devices. God, we're not going to need to learn the hard way every time, God. But sometimes we're just going to look at the example of others and we're just going to do what you say. So, Father, I thank you for your word, that your word is truth. I thank you that it can lead us, it can guide us, it can cause our mind to have peace when it's going this way and that. It can drive out confusion. It can give us courage when we feel like we're full of fear, God. And it can bring us to the place where we really can get everything done that we need to get done. And, Father, most of all, we just want to be well done on the inside of our heart, God, that everything you want done, we allow you to do. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are great and you are glorious. You are worthy of all of our praise, O Lord. We thank you, Lord, that as we read these stories of these wonderful heroes of faith, God, we want to be mindful that we, too, can be a hero to somebody. And we just give you our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.